What's going on, everybody? This is Eric Elliott back with another episode of the Refocus Nutrition Podcast. This week, on, we have on a very special guest. Uh, this is a guy that I have long looked up to in the uh, fitness community, the dieting community, uh, the nutrition community, all these communities. Um, his name is Dr. Mike Isertel. Uh, Mike Isertel is the co-founder and I believe co-owner of Renaissance Periodization, uh, known for short-form RP. Um, Mike is someone that I believe and I follow firmly just because he's very, very, very based in the scientific principles of training and nutrition. Uh, he doesn't deal with the bullshit. Uh, he doesn't, he's very similar to Lane Norton. If you follow Lane Norton, he doesn't, he doesn't deal with fad diets and pseudoscience and people dealing with their feelings around certain, uh, methodologies. It's very much based in science and actual principles and evidence. So, the big things to take away with Mike is that he doesn't just speak from anecdotal evidence and uh, evidence that he's just kind of conjuring up. This is data that he's read or studied himself um, and replicated. So it's very important to keep a, a watchful and listenful eye on him, or a listenful ear, rather. Um, some big takeaways that you're going to take away from this podcast, I think, are uh, a lot of the morality around nutrition that we talk about, I think that's a really interesting uh, tidbit that we dive into a little bit. The idea that um, you know you're more or less moral because of a certain diet you decide to undertake is, for lack of a better word, fucking ridiculous. Um, and then we talk a little bit about hypertrophy within CrossFit um, and why you can't get your muscle up, and that's. I mean, that's the title of the podcast, so I hope I caught your attention. Um, so for those of you who are looking to get a muscle up or something like that in CrossFit, um, listen up. There's some good reason of, as to why you should be adding some hypertrophy, a.k.a. bro, bro bodybuilding sessions to your CrossFit regimen. If you like this podcast, guys, please give us a rating and review. Share it with a friend on Instagram, and I would be happy to uh, share that with you. And also, Mike talks a little bit about this as well, um, but he has an upcoming seminar. So if you want to see Mike in person in Calgary, um, he is coming up in two weekends, which we will put a link to the sh- to in the show notes. I will also be there, so it will be interesting to see Mike in person, um, talk to his team, uh, and get a little bit more information. I know we're going to have both of their other guests on the podcast at some point in the future. That's it for me, guys. This is me rambling, and enjoy the show. All right, guys, we are back with another awesome guest. This time we have on... Dr. Mike Isertel. Mike is the first doctor we're having on the show, so I know he should feel uh, super, super important with that. Um, Mike is someone that like I've followed a lot in the nutrition industry and the fitness industry in general just because he's very no bullshit when it comes to anything that he's talking about, whether that's in the strength community, whether it's in nutrition, uh, lifting, anything he's talking about, uh, it's it's all backed by science, and that's something that I try to ascribe to and follow as well. So welcome to the show, uh, Mike. Um, first off, I kind of want to just talk about your your introduction into the fitness industry, how you got to where you are today, and how you helped found uh, Renaissance Periodization, uh, because I know that's kind of an interesting story. And it's an interesting story on what, where you are kind of in uh, the fitness industry yourself just because you've been a wrestler, a powerlifter, a bodybuilder, and a jiu-jitsu uh, and all over the place, right? So tell me, I guess, uh, in a brief synopsis, how you got it to where you are today. Totally. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for having me on. Um, 
So I was born in ancient Sparta, and my parents sent me on the agogi when I was six years old. You know, I had to fight a big wolf and so the other kids. You've seen the movie 300, I assume. <laughs> that was actually a sort of a rough biopic about me. They had to change a name, King Leonidas, Mike Isertel. It's similar, right? Um, and I'm actually growing out my beard now, so very soon I will look exactly like that. Uh, abs and all. But uh, no, just kidding. Hopefully I don't have to say just kidding for most of your audience. That'd be hilarious if they're like, that sounds <laughs> unlikely. I think Dr. Mike's full of shit. So um, yeah, um, I started um, my first sport that I ever did seriously was wrestling. I did it by total chance. Friend of mine was on his way to wrestling, and he's. I was like, "Hey, do you want to hang out?" He's like, "No, I gotta go to wrestling." I'm like, "Okay, sweet. I'll just come with you." So I just started wrestling, and then uh, I started lifting weights in order to get better at wrestling, and I fell in love with lifting weights. And then in the undergraduate uh, experience in college at University of Michigan, I sort of became more and more impassioned about lifting weights. Started competing in powerlifting. I started to obsess about adding strength, and I changed my major to um, kinesiology. And uh, during that time that I was training there, I started training for strength as well as hypertrophy. And I met uh, my eventual uh, very good friend and co-founder of Renaissance Purization, Nick Shaw. And we started training together. And then I went and moved to a master's program after that in strength and conditioning. By the time I finished my master's program, Nick Shaw, who was a few years younger than me, was about to graduate from his undergraduate at the University of Michigan in a degree called sports management. So actually, exactly what he does now is manage a corporation that produces sport-related products. Hilariously, he did not know at the time that was going to be the case. So we actually both got jobs. Uh, we got the same job at a gym in New York City, a, a private personal training studio. We got to New York City. We started training people. You know, we were always a very, we were nerdy, and we thought science was certainly a sure path to the, the surest path to the truth. And we tried to meticulously organize the training for our clients, use as much periodization as we knew, so on and so forth, record all the numbers. And we found like a pretty big um, antipathy to that sort of thing much of the training industry in New York, there's a lot of guruism going on. There's a lot of fads. You know, you'd have to, every diet you did, or every training program you did have to have a name, some kind of name. Like, oh, well, who, who, you know, who's the guru that says you should do this? And, you know, I remember one time we were asked, you know, what, what kind of training program do you do? Is it like, you know, five through one? Is it Dave Tate? Is it this and that? And we're like, it's periodization. And that answer, of course, fell on deaf ears. Um, and we sort of got developed a healthy resentment, I would say, of anti-scientific practices and committed ourselves to eventually, uh, potentially, just keep on doing our thing and trying to bring a bit of light, uh, a bit of a rebirth of science practice in the training and nutrition industries. And uh, eventually, um, I decided I need to learn a whole lot more. And Nick decided he needed to do his own practice. So I went and moved to uh, Johnson City, Tennessee to do a PhD in sport physiology under Dr. Mike Stone to learn more because I needed to learn more science in order to help more people. And Nick Shaw started his own training practice in the city. And I'd uh, you know, been helping some of my clients with nutrition at this time. And my nutrition clients started recommending their friends in New York who'd never met me, never met Nick. They would start recommending me for nutrition on the digital uh, relationship, which was, you know, I was living in Tennessee and I would send them nutrition plans and they would execute them and they would get really good results sometimes as best as I could manage. And um, what ends up happening is a lot of those nutrition clients got to sort of understanding that our scientific approach was pretty effective. And they sort of clued into that their own trainer in New York City, which is really like uh, just not somebody who's given them the best possible results. So they would ask them, hey, why are we doing this exercise? And they would say things like, just because, or just, just kind of do it, don't ask questions. And they realized that, you know, if they asked me about nutrition, why they were doing anything, I would explain to them in as, as great of detail as they found was valuable use of their time. 
So uh, they were like, oh, you know, do you know any trainers in New York that are any good? Because my trainer sucks. And, uh, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I know this guy, Nick Shaw. And I got tired of seeing uh, my friend, Nick Shaw, this guy, Nick Shaw, buddy of mine. Because, you know, it doesn't sound uh, super professional. <laughs> and um, so Nick and I decided to go into business together so we could at the very least call each other colleagues, right? If you're part of the same corporation, then you say, oh, my colleague actually works there. I'm like, oh, colleague, you know, that, that sounds, sounds like you guys have your shit together. So uh, that's how we founded RP. Nick Shaw founded the company formally. Um, that was in 2012, 2010, I forget, 2012, I think. Yeah. And um, we started RP and it was just Nick and I doing coaching. Eventually, we ran out of room. I couldn't coach that many people because I was on a PhD program. Uh, and then Nick couldn't eventually just topped out himself, which was a huge, uh, impressive feat because he was all he did was coach. And he was also doing personal training at the time, in-person training. And he had to start kind of doing fewer and fewer in-person clients because his online clients was growing. And we needed more help. So we started hiring uh, colleagues of mine who were PhD students. Dr. James Hoffman was one of our early hires, uh, Dr. Christian Carter. And these were people who were not PhDs at the time. They were in the same PhD program for sports science as I was in Tennessee. And then, you know, when you're around really talented people and they have free time, you're like, hey, you want, you want to come work here and make money? And they're like, okay. So they started helping us out. And Dr. Jen, um, Jen Case joined the team uh, shortly thereafter when I went and did uh, finish my PhD. And, and so we sort of started accumulating people that were uh, helping us uh, coach individuals. And we ran into, um, I wouldn't say a problem, but an interesting scenario where people would ask us why we were doing uh, certain diet approaches, why we were cutting uh, fats, why we were cutting carbs and when and how, how we come into our conclusions on meal timing and spacing and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I like to say sort of comedically, we got tired of answering the same questions, but in truth, the, the, the reality is a little bit more charitable to us and a bit more nuanced is that we really just wanted to make sure we were giving out very good answers and similar answers, question to question to question. And we wanted to offer our clients a, a good sort of compendium of our nutrition knowledge that was simplified and summarized and was accessible. So myself and Dr. John Case and Dr. James Hoffman uh, wrote the first uh, book that we wrote at RP, which was the Renaissance Diet um, at the time 1.0. We didn't call it 1.0. It was just the Renaissance Diet. And um, it just basically organized a, a scientific approach to nutrition uh, and just described why and how and when nutrition should be manipulated in order to get fat loss results and sport performance results and muscle gain results. And that book, we sold it through our new friend, uh, Chad Wesley Smith at Juggernaut Training. And, and people seem to really like the book a lot. And uh, people started talking about the book and we got a whole lot more clients just because people read the book. And during my time of designing, uh, of being a, a part of a co-author, on the Renaissance Diet, we had a specific chapter. I forget which chapter it was now. Maybe chapter 10? I know it's chapter 10 in the new book. One of the chapters was called Designing Your Own Diet. And in that chapter, we took all of the knowledge from the earlier chapters of how many calories you should be eating, what your macros should be, what your timing could look like. And we applied this into a, um, essentially what can be described as an algorithm, a series of predictable steps you go through from the beginning to the end of a diet design process, like how to build your own diet. It was just a series of steps. And there's also another series of steps after that in that same chapter of how to manipulate your diet based on the results you're getting in order to tailor your diet to get the results you want. And I realized at the time that I was writing it that these were well-defined problems. Uh, they were algorithmic problems. And thus, to be really technical about it, they were very well suited for expert system artificial intelligence to tackle. And in other words, I was like, you know, we can probably build an app that just does this <laughs> and designs diets and coaches people through diets. And Nick was like, okay. And I was like, but we can do a real shortcut of an app 
and do what's called what we call diet templates, where it's just a series of several documents. And when your results of the diet don't uh, start to sort of peter out, you switch to the next series of documents or to the next document that sort of cuts your food a little bit or increases your food based on your responses. So it's a very, very, like very rough heuristic of what an algorithm would be. And, but it's simple. It has that advantage and it's roughly pretty effective. So I said, you know what, Nick, let me build these diet templates for you through Microsoft Excel. And then if they do okay, maybe we'll build an app later. And he said, okay, built the diet templates. And this was about three or four months after the book had been released. We started selling them and people at first thought they were okay. And then they didn't say much about them. And then they started getting results and they started posting the results and uh, holy crap, people started buying them like crazy and people started getting more results and buying them like crazy and getting more results, uh, dot, 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 dot. So after several years of that, we had uh, a very updated third generation diet templates. We had uh, second generation training templates. We had a whole crap load of books. We had a staff of 20 some odd coaches and a support staff, et cetera. And then just uh, this past year, our, uh, finally our efforts, which is a very, uh, you know, uh, trials and tribulations of, of, uh, of uh, data engineering, et cetera, uh, app development. We finally released our Renaissance Diet app and it's currently a mature product and it's got a crap load of users and they think it's way better than the templates, which is a huge compliment because I think it is too. And uh, finally, we have an expert system AI that, that really is a diet coach and it comes in your pocket for 15 bucks a month, which is super neat. So that's our kind of a story of Renaissance. So we still do a lot of the stuff we used to. We always have personal coaching. But now I know if you're not in the market for personal coaching, if you're sort of used to running your own diet or your own training, we have a bunch of digital tools available, which you can do that and be guided by the, by the, the calm hand of sports science for a very, for a very low monthly fee. Uh, so that's the deal. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good resource. For, like you said, a lot of people that, you know, don't have the financial resources to get into, say, you know, the individual coaching market where you're paying a hundred and some dollars per month. Totally. That definitely, definitely helps for people to start on. And then if they want to go to coaching later on, for more specific. Yeah. So let me say something about that real quick. I think that's actually uh, uh, something I maybe left out is what we have now that Renaissance is a more mature company is almost like a tier structure where mm-hmm. if you come to RP, you can get anything, uh, you know, from completely free service all the way to very expensive service. And the level of service, of course, becomes much more specific and much more tailored to you as it increases in price. But it doesn't matter where you come in, where your price point is, including zero, we got something for you. So for example, we have a crap load of free articles and a ton of free videos. And our Instagram is just rife with tons of free information about stuff. So if you just follow us, you're going to get a whole lot of free information. If you up one price point from there in the 10 to $30 range, you can join RP plus, which is our community where we have basically university level courses and hundreds and hundreds of them that you can like watch YouTube videos for hours and on end learning in depth sports science that you're very leisure for 10 bucks a month. And you can ask myself and my colleague, Dr. James Hoffman every week we do a webinar. We answer any questions at a very deep level. And in addition to that, the same price point is books. We have books on nutrition. We have books on female nutrition, we have books on uh, strength training, so on and so forth, recovery, so that if you you know pay 25 bucks, you can get really almost a textbook level book that's designed for uh, a person to read and really understand the concept in depth. And then of course, if you wanna take your financial commitment to the next level, so to speak, I sound like I'm a MLM scheme, you know, for just a little bit more of a commitment, you can also be a gold member, platinum member. Um, <laughs> None of that here, but uh, you know, you might be able to buy something like the apps, which is 15 bucks a month, 
which is like 900 Canadian or something. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, so, you know, like 15 or 20 Canadian a month will get you a digital diet coach in your pocket. Roughly the same amount spread over just a one-time purchase gets you training templates that you can run your hypertrophy or strength training on. You just, it's a digital product you have on your desktop and it, on your phone and it operates your training for you. You just type in how strong you are, type in how you're responding to the program. It updates everything for you automatically. And then the next price point up is like, you know, 600 bucks every uh, three months or so is coaching and that uh, we're really proud of our coaches. Most of our coaches have PhDs in the biological or sports sciences. A bunch of our coaches are registered dietitians. So we have this, a bunch of them are medical doctors. So we have this crazy advanced team. Look, if, if you know, if you really want special attention paid to you and you really want um, the best of the best in coaching, we've got it. And so like, like you sort of said earlier, if you're not sort of interested or know or potentially are able to afford something pretty expensive like the coaching, uh, which, you know, is worth every penny, if I say so myself, uh, you, there's always something for you at RP, which I think is really cool because um, sometimes companies either one or the other and they don't really offer anything. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you on that, that tier system. And, and the, one of the things, like one of the ways I got onto initially was actually was someone sent me that TEDx video that you did a number of years ago. I want to say it was in 2015, but I can't even remember to be honest with you. Um, and that makes both of us. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those videos that if you haven't seen it already, I really, I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, it's something that you want to watch just because it's 14 minutes long. And if you don't have a fucking clue how nutrition works in 14 minutes, you'll have a very decent understanding of what, what you need to do and the importance of each thing within that, uh, nutrition periodization that you break down and you break that down in the diet book as well. So basically after watching that, I bought the diet book, but my question with that is why, why do people have to make nutrition so fucking hard? Um, first off, because like that is the most simple way of looking at it. Right. But we always, when you, when you get the most questions and I'm sure you get these at seminars, it's like, you know, it's people asking about mealtime and do I, do I get, is all of the calories after 8 PM turn into body fat, all of these kinds of different old wives tales and you know, any carb, uh, without a protein and a fat is just straight body fat and all these kinds of weird things. Like why do we make it so difficult when something is actually so simple? Yeah, I would say that before dieting becomes simple, it requires an upfront intellectual investment of trying to understand its basic principles. For some people that what I just said is too fucking much and it looks too hard and they fuck that. So they just never bother doing that. And then they're rife for getting suckered by people who are giving them trips and tricks and quirks and all kinds of shortcuts that aren't really shortcuts at all. And some people, even knowing that there's this topography, don't care because they just always look for shortcuts no matter what. You know, people say, um, this is so funny, uh, some people rightfully say that in our industry, there are many companies and people who are less than savory and will essentially sell you anything right? They sell you something that is like, you know, a tip and trick and fit tea and body wrap and something that doesn't work. And there's a tendency to, again, rightly blame those companies for being fraudulent to some extent or just very un unbecoming. That's correct, but it's, a, you know, uh, the market is a two-way street. For every company that exists that sells bubble, I was going to say bubble tea, which is delicious. I was never meant to ignore <laughs> that. Um, fit tea or stupid wraps or stupid machines, waist trainers that don't work. Um, for every company that exists like that, there are literally thousands of people that are waiting, cannot wait, are just pumped to shit their money down the throats of these people. They want trip, tick, uh, tr you know, tricks and tips and quirks 
and, and, and shortcuts, and they will willingly go out of their way to look for them and pay exorbitant amounts of money for them because they believe that they are real. And they desperately want to believe that they're real because they think that by investing in shortcuts, they will have a shortcut and will have to invest very little for what they get out. Unfortunately, that's almost never the case. So people a lot of times sucker themselves and openly and willingly. And I'll say another thing on a really sort of depressing note, people do this repeatedly. They have a recursive suckering effect where they will go through one fad, it won't work, and they'll just like bat their eyes and go to the next fad, learning nothing. You know, um, one thing I used to say in my lectures uh, to my students when I was a university professor is one of the reasons you want to learn the basis of nutritional science, which like you said, takes 14 minutes, right? Um, is so that you don't fall for every single possible diet fallacy. And I literally know people personally who I've known since the mid 1990s and they've fallen for every single fallacy you can imagine. Do you have you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? Yep. Remember they do that thing with Lieutenant Dan where they say like his ancestors fought and died in every single American <laughs> war. Like that's how I see people with diet fads. Like in the in the in the mid nineties, you would be at a restaurant with them and you would order a steak. And they would say, Oh my God, do you know how that's saturated fat in it, right? And you're like, Yes. They're like, well that's deadly. You're like, right. And then like Five years later, they were ordering a fatty steak, and you're like, hmm, are you watching your calories? And they're like, I don't have to. I do keto. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, they're pouring olive oil and avocado oil down their throats because it's going to save their lives. And after that, they're eating no sugar. And then they're vegan, so they eat a ton of sugar. And so they go through every single fad. And I have people like this that message me relatively frequently. They're very nice people. They're, they're mean well, but they'll, any fad that comes up, they'll message me or they'll hook me up somewhere and be like, Dr. Mike, what do you think about this? And I'm like, good, for the love of God, read this book. Don't even read my book. Read anyone's book. Read a book. And uh, sometimes it's really unfortunate, but people consistently fall for these fads. Um, it, I would say mostly because they're looking for shortcuts. And let me buttress this with the observation that there's nothing inherently at face value wrong with looking for shortcuts, right? Like, can you imagine if someone's like, here's the path through the woods, and it's this convoluted fucking path, takes you, you know, by grandma's house, by the wolf's house, and all this shit, hit Red, Red Riding Hood on your way. You're like, man, you know, is there a shorter path through the woods? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, totally. You can get through the woods in three kilometers here. I thought you wanted the scenic route. And you're like, I don't fucking want the scenic route. I just want to drive through the fucking woods to get to the McDonald's on the other side or something. Then, boom, shortcut. I mean, shortcuts are real. And it's a, the fact that the real is just a reflection of the, the human desire to save resources, right, to be most efficient. Yep. So people are coming from a good place most of the time when they want shortcuts. Because why the fuck would you look for a long cut? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, unfortunately, you know, like as P.T. Barnum, you know, had born or whatever, sucker born every minute, it's just shortcuts are not nearly as common as people would like to believe that they would like to hope. Um, you know, like at Re Renaissance, we offer every shortcut that works. <laughs> unfortunately, we don't offer none of the ones that don't. Uh, other individuals or companies may sell you something that they say works, but doesn't. And it's just as much of a shortcut. So if you're really into shortcuts and you don't do your sort of due diligence and, you know, sort of maybe you only deal with companies or people that are very respectful of science so on and so forth, then you might invest into some shortcuts that are actually very long cuts to nowhere. Uh, and that's where the problem is. So there's nothing inherently wrong with people wanting shortcuts. It's just, yeah, you know, admit to yourself you want the shortcut, which is great. We all do. And then go, okay, how do I know I'm not being duped? And then you have to fall back on, I think the only thing that really counts, a respect for science, the scientific process, the scientific method, logic and reason. And you start to look for products, services, and individuals that really sort of do their 
uh, full involvement in representing the product scientifically. Uh, and a lot of times, one really good telltale sign is, is a very calm approach, is approach with very little hype, and it requires work on your part. Right, so like at RP, we have before and after pictures and all these transformations, and they look pretty hypey, and they are like, oh my god, wow, look at these people getting in great shape. And then people say like, how do I do this? And I'm like, well, you you got to diet for like 12 or 16 weeks, and they're like, oh, I can't like just take a pill or do a body wrap. Like, nope, it's gonna you're gonna suffer. I'm like, fuck. But that that reality is actually a good sign as far you know. And there's tons of other companies and people that do what we do super well, and they'll all tell you like, you want the results, you're gonna have to put in the work, you're gonna have to be diligent, and no, you can't eat whatever you want. And as soon as you hear something like that from a company, you can be more sure that they're probably not selling you bullshit. Yeah, and I think one of the things you talked about too is like the, the shortcuts are actually like, the real shortcut is, is doing it the right way, right? Because if you, if you jump from fad to fad to fad to fad, that's the long way. Like the long way is eventually getting to the, the 14 minute video 12 months later than you should have got there. Maybe, like the maybe. I think yeah, that's an maybe. optimistic view, Eric. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. So one of the things I wanted to talk about too was within those that the fads, and this is where it becomes hard for, I don't want to say hard, maybe hard is being too easy on people is knowing what is real science and what isn't because there's a lot of crap that gets put around in the nutrition industry. Um, and, and not necessarily on the, the people running studies. I mean, it definitely happens from that aspect of things, but news agencies just picking up, you know, studies, they have headline grabbing things. Like I, I, I remember a lot of people, a lot of my clients actually asked me about um, like the protein powder one causing everything under the sun, like cancer, sure, chronic disease, everything. Um, and, and then the other, the other one too, is you seen like you go into like a chapters and indigo books and you, you know, you're looking for a book on, on uh, nutrition and you, you happen to walk into the aisle and, you know, there's tons of books in there and then you come across a book and I'm going to pick on this guy because I don't really like what he does with science. And I use that in air quotes is like good calories, bad calories, Gary Tobbs, right? Like, and, and as a CrossFitter and as someone who works in the CrossFit industry, um, CrossFit supports this guy to no end, even though he's admitted in an actual debate that he would not, he would not admit that he was wrong, even if the evidence said that he was wrong. I remember that. So how do you, how do we as a public navigate the good studies from the bad studies? How do we tell and how do we get around the bullshit that's in there? Like from people like Gary, who like, even in that, he went on a Lane Norton debate with, uh, on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And a lot of the things that he said in the podcast were just, yeah, didn't exactly line up with actually how the human body even works. Sure. So, there's no foolproof way, but there are a couple of cool tips that I can give that if you're just a member of the public and you don't know a whole lot about nutrition, how you can increase your chances of steering into some proper content, proper help, and steer away from um, improper stuff that was just going to get you nowhere. Um, one of the rules that works okay is look for bombastic claims and run like hell from them. Anything that claims to be revolutionary is probably wrong. Anything that claims to be disproving the industry-wide approach is wrong, uh, probably wrong. Um, anything that claims to get you unbelievable results with very little effort is probably wrong. So you're going to automatically look for things that do not seem to be revolutionary. Um, like, for example, our, our diet book's called The Renaissance Diet. Nowhere in the book does it say a revolutionary new approach. It just doesn't. Uh, it just says the scientific approach to performance and or whatever, fat loss eating. That's it. Uh, 
okay, that sounds boring. Well, if it sounds boring, maybe it's onto something, right? Because as a company, we could have made it sound sexy as, as hell, but if we made it sound boring, man, there's probably a good reason for that, you know, because making things sound, sound sexy as hell definitely gets you more books sold up front. Um, good calories, bad calories. I mean, Jesus, you put moralistic reasoning in your book, you're going to get people to buy it. I don't want to be a bad person eating bad calories. I better buy this book, right? But if someone says, you know, if the book is called, uh, you know, The Reality of Sports Nutrition, and you're like, eh, that sounds boring. Well, everyone knows that bombastic claims make money. If they're, if they're outwardly not making them and they're still putting out content, they probably are doing it for a good reason. That reason is, well, you could call it integrity. We call it the long view investing in things that work. <laughs> so it, automatically there's a good rule right there. Um, so if someone is, is claiming really crazy things, is claiming to be a revolutionary, uh, here's another one, claiming that almost everyone else is wrong. Uh, that's not, not really good right off the gate. Um, another one is if you stumble on any person that uh, is sort of um, advocating diets or they're on Instagram or something and you get to hear them interact and hear them write or hear them speak, you want to look for the degree of nuance that they speak with. Almost all intellectually, scientifically trained people speak with a degree of uh, uh, nuance and speak with a degree of resistance to making absolute claims. So if someone asks someone on an Instagram Live that you follow, hey, like, should I eat carbs or carbs bad? Okay, like a, a non-nuanced answer, the kind that should make you recoil away from that person to some extent to be like, carbs are great and you should be eating them. Okay, that's not a very nuanced answer. Another one is carbs are terrible and make you fat. Not another non-nuanced answer. What does a nuanced answer sound like? You don't even have to look at the particulars of the answer. You can hear, well, you know, so first we have to figure out the context of the individual. If someone has a higher level of activity, then they probably can benefit from more carbohydrate. If they have a lower level of activity, they can absolutely get high level of carbohydrate, but might not have to for these following factors. But you know, that sounds like an answer that somebody who actually knows stuff would give. If, for example, if you walk up to a doctor and you're like, hey, do I have, a, do I have bronchitis? If he's like, mm, yes, or no, bronchitis is a myth. Yeah, geez, you're probably dealing with a bullshit artist. But if he's like, well, you know, why don't you come into my office and let's actually do some, uh, listen to your lungs and maybe do some blood work, <laughs> then all of a sudden that's very nuanced. And, and uh, you know, he might even, even if you're sitting on a plane with a doctor and you're coughing and you're like, hey, do I have bronchitis? He's like, well, cough a couple more times. Let me at least, at least hear that. And you can say, you know, how old are you? Do you have any comorbidities? Even if he can't diagnose you properly in his office, he may say, well, you know, you're, you're under 40 years old. You haven't been exposed to any kind of crazy pathogens. You're not around children a lot. Uh, it's not that time of the year. Your cough doesn't sound that bad. You probably don't have bronchitis, right? Or you might, but it's certainly not my first guess. Whereas another year, if you're 75 years old, and you've been around people who've had bronchitis recently, your cough sounds like shit. He's going to be like, I would certainly go to the doctor's office when we land in this plane and probably check out maybe you have bronchitis, right? So it, it, clear black and white yes or no answers to often complicated questions is a real good sign someone that's peddling in bullshit. Um, so, you know, super shortcut solutions, uh, lack of nuance, bombastic claims. If you stay away from most of that stuff, the circle of practitioners you're left with is not going to be all science-minded science people that won't rip you off, but it's going to be way more of them in there. And then if you invest in one of those, you can just start a diet that is in that circle, start a training program or start communicating with a trainer that fit all those criteria. And then as you go, if you ask them questions, if you look into their logic, if you try to figure out how the system works and you're met with 
just trust the process or it doesn't matter or all these other diets are crap. This is the only approach that works. You're going to sort of recede away from maybe making a big investment in that. But if you get the right kind of answers, which are again, nuanced and uh, take individual considerations into account, promise slow but steady results with a lot of effort, then you can start to be sort of more inclined to believe them. So for example, uh, I'll toot my own horn for a second. When people ask me like, Hey, um, you know, should uh, we hire an RP coach or a 3DMJ coach? Are you familiar with 3DMJ, Eric? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, Eric Helms and that gang, you know, they're sort of direct competitors to us in a certain sense. When people ask me, should I hire you or 3DMJ? I'm like, you know, it's both excellent companies. I have nothing but great things to say about them. They really are science-based. They get awesome results. Um, I would just say it's a matter of preference and price and maybe specifically exactly what you're looking for. And both are excellent. And some, you know, I've been uh, sort of told they could really, really like, you're going to tell people not to hire your own company. Well, you know, our company's great, but there's like at least 10 other companies that do what we do super, super fucking well. Fuck if I know if they may be better than us, right? Now, all of a sudden, if someone's like, what about this approach or that approach? What about carb cycling? Uh, uh, the kind of answers you get from us is, well, you know, it has advantages and disadvantages, right? If you get another answer of like, well, it's stupid and you're an idiot or how dare you or like, I thought you were one of us. You know, um, then, you know, you're, you're not getting really good answers. Lastly, if someone can explain to you at least a reasonable amount of, of detail why they do what they do, good sign. If they can't explain why, if they say it just works, gee, you're off to a real bad start. You know, like um, ask a fit tea salesman why fit tea makes you fit. You're going to go down a hell of a wormhole of nothing, right? Uh, and they, sooner or later, they're going to, they're going to, you know, their recourse is, well, look at all these people in these before and after photos. They can't be wrong. We can't all be wrong, right? <clears throat> That's not really an explanation. If you ask, you know, an RP coach, why does your system work? We're going to send you a book, <laughs> like a whole book. And you're like, damn it, I shouldn't have never asked. But clearly these people have thought this through. And if you ask us a specific question, we can give you very, very detailed insight into exactly why a specific answer would be correct. That's another very good science. If you take all that together, can you still be fooled? Yeah, totally. Uh, there are very, very savvy people who, who are sort of wear the science sheep's clothing and they're a wolf. Uh, they, that happens, but uh, it's pretty rare and uh, definitely better than shooting blanks at the situation where you're like, oh, I'll just pick randomly out of the Instagram hat and just hire whoever the hell, you know, my cursor lands on, which is fit tea sales girl. And all of a sudden you're pissing away money for no reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you met, you mentioned that as well. Um, when it talk, you talked about it at the start was the morality around like the good calories, bad calories thing. And that's something you see, not just in nutrition, you see it in fitness as well. Um, like you see it today, like again, I'm, I'm a CrossFitter and there's, there's CrossFit, there's F45, there's Orange Theory, there's bodybuilding, there's powerlifting, there's wrestling. There's all these different types of, you know, physical movements and just being active, which is going to get, you know, the lay person to where they want to go in terms of if they wanted to lose body fat, right? But in each one of these camps, you have, you know, you identify with, what you are and you you describe that or you ascribe that to being making you better like you know i'm a crossfitter so i i'm better than all of these other people like it's and crossfit especially it's been described as being part of a cult right um why does that exist within fitness and why does that like it, in the same aspect why does it exist within nutrition because same thing right you get people who are keto people who are paleo vegan all these kinds of things and they they ascribe to be higher in morality just because they're doing a certain way of life with their eating or their, their fitness methodology. 
So a lot of it has to do with in-groups and out-groups, and I have so far found very few areas of public life in which in-groups and out-groups do not get formed and a moralization around them does not spontaneously emerge. Yep. For example, there are theoretical physicists which belong to one of several camps of understanding of origins of the universe, and one camp will think the other camp is just full of basically mentally retarded people as far as they're concerned, and just <laughs> obvious idiots, and the other camp will think the same of them. So, uh, you know, if theoretical physicists are apt to be fooled in such ways, geez, that's bad news for the rest of us. Uh, so, it, it, and you, you want to be a part of something you think is right, and remember, you're making an investment, right? So when you're in a CrossFit gym or when you're in an Orange Theory class, you want to make sure that you sort of tell yourself, like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. And if you buy into the idea that what you're doing is correct, and by extension, everything else is not as correct or not correct at all, then all of a sudden you start to feel pretty good about you're doing the right thing and you're in the know. Somebody could ask you, you know, there's always that annoying person at a dinner party that's, you know, you, you do uh, Orange Theory and they do CrossFit. And they're like, why don't you do CrossFit? Why do you do Orange Theory? And you're like, because. And I tell yourself something. You know, nobody wants to say, well, I just like doing Orange Theory and it works. So I'm just going to keep doing it, uh, and CrossFit might be also cool, but I haven't done it yet, just because the Orange Theory gym down the street for me, that's a fine answer, actually. But most people don't want to give that kind of answer, so they have to have sort of a little bit of in-group, out-group uh, things going on. And then the second part of the answer is I think there tends to be an over-moralization about most things. Humans are very moral animals, uh, and uh, sometimes that's a really good thing. Um, I think if you see... You know, like someone, uh, you know, you walk by a situation where someone's beating up on a six-year-old girl, you're probably going to have something to do or say about it. <laughs> you're not like, oh, it's just two objects interacting at certain velocities. Like, that's nonsense. Like, you got to get in the way or something. Uh, and uh, the other, uh, you know, uh, so that's a good thing that you're moralizing in many situations which require moralization. But our, our, in, our, our sort of moral calculus tends to overextend itself to things which is wholly inappropriate for like uh, ways of eating, for example, the ways of training. The ways of eating thing at least has some sort of ethical implications. Uh, so there are moral extensions to eating patterns, which are valid. For example, veganism has a lot of really, really good things going for it morally uh, because, you know, animals probably do suffer. At least some of them suffer quite a bit and they might have some foresight into their own death. And that's not great. You know, and there's definitely trade-offs both ways. But, um, you know, gee, do you do CrossFit versus Orange Theory? It's really difficult to caricature as a moral battle, right? Like aliens that come down to Earth to study morality, you show them Orange Theory class and a CrossFit class, they're like, which ones are the better people? They'd be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> the ones moving barbells up and down for no point versus the ones on a bicycle going nowhere? <laughs> um, well, they're both dumb because the barbell's not going anywhere and the bicycle's attached to the ground. Someone should tell them that they're not accomplishing any actual work. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, so it's really a moot point, but people like to moralize. They sort of do it instinctively. They want to know what they're doing isn't just effective, but oftentimes that it is good, that it is right. And it's a temptation all of us have. Uh, so when you combine moralization, tendency to over-moralize with the in-group, out-group mentality, as soon as you join a certain gym, you want to see yourself as doing the right thing. You want to see yourself and your gym goers or philosophy havers as us. You see other people as them. And if your tendency to moralize is to some extent high, which most people's is, then your us automatically becomes good, them automatically becomes less good, or really the way morals work is bad, right? Morals are, people who tend to over-moralize very rarely think in gradations, right? You're not gonna say like, oh, you know, that's less good and that's even less good and we're the best. That's okay, could be wrong, but at least has gradations. Most of the time it's we have the right approach and everyone else is just some combination of stupid, intellectually lazy, downright nefarious, 
uh, at times. And, and clearly, there's only one correct answer. So you, that combination of in-group, out-group thinking and the tendency to over-moralize is, uh, is pretty gnarly. And sometimes, if you get real far up upstream uh, in, in an investment in your own fitness, uh, in the low-carb community, in the vegan community, there's no community that's exempt from this, by the way. Even in the scientific community, unfortunately, you can become very, very opaque to anything that changes your mind. And all of a sudden, you it's very difficult for someone to convince you of any kind of nuance and of any kind of trade-offs. Um, and all of a sudden, you're a hardliner, and it's really difficult to get you back. So that's definitely an issue. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And, and it speaks to the point about, you know, the, the nuance that you talked about, like the answers you should get is, you know, usually from someone that knows what they're doing, the answer is usually it, it depends. Um, one of the sure. things I wanted to, to, to talk to you about lastly, about what the nutrition aspect of things was kind of like this, these, we always have these trends, right? Like you mentioned in the nineties, you know, we were, we were scared shitless or fat. Um, and then things have changed and now we're into the keto and then, you know, through the mid two thousands, late two thousands. And even now if fits your macros came back up and really popularized things. And one of the trends I'm seeing now is people getting really interested in the longevity aspects of things. And I almost see it combating online in terms of if it fits your macros and sugar consumption and things like that directly against longevity and people ascribing to the fact that if you want to live a long life you can't eat basically any sugar and any any sugar in your diet is going to cause it mm. what does the science say about something like that because i know that's something that you know within crossfit is is a huge thing like the last the last two words of their food prescription is no sugar right so how do we how do we get navigate around that if we're trying to find kind of a best of both worlds but also want to focus on longevity uh, it's a really good question so uh, the nutritional science on that is interesting. Um, if you're concerned with sugar in your diet making your lifespan less long, you should really be concerned with protein as well because higher protein intakes tend to be associated with lower lifespans. And then you really start to look at it, higher saturated fat intakes really associated with lower lifespans. And if you really take a look at it, you realize higher calorie intakes are associated with lower lifespans. So your sugar may not even be in the top two things that will kill you fastest. Now, it certainly is in, in the top three or four, um, especially an excessive amount of sugar relative to your physical activity. Uh, but really, if you're eating uh, in an isocaloric state, you're not gaining weight and you're at a healthy weight, how much sugar you eat as a fraction of your calories is almost entirely immaterial to how long you live. And if you say that it's not immaterial, then you're really up against another problem is that if you say we have to eat less sugar or less carbohydrate or less what have you, you're by definition, because the caloric constraint uh, is what it is, you have a certain number of calories to make, you're by definition saying we have to eat more of protein or more fat or more of both, some combination. And then it's just a matter of PubMed and getting literature on fat intakes and longevity, which is, again, a rather dystopian, <laughs> and then protein intakes and longevity, which again has its downsides, right? So you're kind of in a box there where it turns out actually the, the thing that promotes longevity the best is to eat a very low calorie diet. It doesn't so much matter what you eat in that diet. It, it, what matters a lot is how low the calories are. And the next question is, well, wouldn't that make you lose weight? Absolutely. There is a direct, almost linear relationship between an animal's body size uh, within any species and its proneness to longevity. We can actually take an example. I mean, humans is pretty crystal clear. If you weigh 600 pounds, you're not going to be living into your 60s. That's for damn sure. 
um, people who are usually smaller to a very low point, actually, so long as they remain generally healthy, live longer. Um, you can see this very clear example in dogs. Dogs are all technically one species, although some of them are so grotesquely outsized that they can't actually interbreed and technically are not one species. So uh, it's total side note, scientific nerd stuff. Um, I would subsume that chihuahuas and Great Danes are probably not the same species by the technical definition because chihuahuas cannot be inseminated by Great Danes and vice versa and successfully bring without a massive amount of human assistance in one case and in another case, nothing at all. Chihuahua female to Great Dane male, by the way. <laughs> there is no ability to reproduce offspring, so that's actually two different species at that point by definition. But like within you know most species of dogs, if you get a chihuahua, the thing lives for like 18 fucking years and won't fucking die, even though it yips at everything and bit your mailman 10 times. But if you get a Great Dane, it's a sweet dog, but it dies in like four years or something, right? So the yeah. bigger you get, the shorter you live, generally speaking, within any given species. And so the almost people are very obsessed with longevity, you have to sort of take them a step back and say, I understand what you're saying, but that means you probably have to go start weighing 120 pounds. Don't do a shitload of physical activity. Do really moderate or light, light intensity and volume physical activity. Really save yourself. Eat a diet that is really lacking in most of the tasty things you could eat, although it's probably pretty high in fruits and vegetables, but not very high in protein, not very high in fat, uh, definitely low in sugars. And it's going to be a not-so-fun diet to eat your entire life, certainly without some exceptions here and there. Um, but you will live a really long time or give yourself a higher chance of doing that. The that interesting like thing is, existence. Uh, well, so, you know, like that's how sort of Tibetan and, and Buddhist monks live. They live a really long time, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, their physical activity is walking and some yoga, perhaps. Um, they don't do a whole lot of either one of those. They sit around a lot. They stay away from stress. And they eat a very bland diet of, you know, all the stuff I just mentioned for the most part. They live a long time and they like living a long time because for them, uh, the, the living is sort of in... Uh, and meditative state a lot a lot of the time or at least a mindful state most of the time is really what brings them the most joy and fulfillment eh, not everyone lives like that some people like life with a bit more oomph in it you know like crashing dirt bikes into shit or atvs or snowmobiles whatever the hell you guys do in canada right that i just list all of canada's three national uh, hobbies there yes, uh, <laughs> oh i'm sorry crashing into other people on ice <laughs> <laughs> oh canada so <laughs> so basically you know some people like to live life in a way that's really fun and have a high level of physical activity, eat a lot of delicious foods, and there's a balance there. There's actually a trade-off to some extent between longevity and quality of life. Right? If you want a really high quality, like you have to ask yourself, do you want like a badass 75 years of life, uh, or do you want a uh, 90 years of life where you're, you know, you don't do a lot of stuff other people do, you kind of eke out your existence. There is no correct answer to that. It is completely a personal choice. It's just good when people start to debate about longevity to understand that there is no magic diet that gives you the most of both. At some point, it is a trade-off. And, uh, and then all the longevity stuff really does. It, it really is the thing. Intermittent fasting probably improves your longevity, mostly because it just makes you eat less food and makes you skinnier, right? Uh, is that a way to live? If it's a way to live for you, rock on. If, if you don't want to live like that and you understand the trade-off, Live any way you like, just know what you're getting into. So it, it's, it's all a matter of trade-offs. I will preface this by saying that the, um, uh, the uh, ge genetics and nanotechnology revolutions that will be hitting us uh, pretty soon, or already starting, uh, are gonna extend human lifespan to a, uh, really, really crazy uh, lengths, probably here in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Uh, so I think all of this might be a, kind of a moot point, especially for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, so that stuff's gonna be really cool, uh, but uh, you know, to the extent that diet can help at least keep you alive long enough. I think the longevity stuff is really awesome. 
But again, it's not very sexy. It's eat relatively boring foods, make sure you meet your nutritional requirements, don't do anything super risky, and try to be a relatively small person, which also means small level of muscle mass, by the way. Yeah, and who wants that, right? Like, so when we were talking really about Really not like, me, not you. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you've been on Mike's uh, Instagram, it's not only fun, but uh, you definitely see that that is not the life he's trying to lead right now. <laughs> For sure. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about too was because Mike's coming next, not next week, I guess two weeks from now, uh, he's coming north of the border. He's going to have to curb his Canada jokes. Well, actually, we'll probably just apologize in some way. <laughs> um, and then he's going to be talking at, actually at the University of Calgary uh, for two days, uh, along with his colleagues, about some hypertrophy stuff. Um, one of the questions, and you can talk a little bit about that seminar as well, but one of the questions I wanted to ask from you as a CrossFitter is how does how does that fit within the – the CrossFit year, if you will, is yeah, there, totally. because that's, that's one thing that seems to be popping its head up a little bit more recently is, is uh, bodybuilding aspects within CrossFit. I think not that I'm an elite level CrossFit or anything, but I think that's one of the things that I had a very low, uh, short period of time to learn everything like muscle ups and all that, those kinds of things. And, and pull-ups was very easy to me because I spent a lot of years doing bodybuilding style training inside of the gym that um, I think a lot of people who are joining today's boxes, gyms, if if you don't have to follow the CrossFit vernacular, um, miss out on is they don't they don't get the, the bodybuilding time that they need before getting into a gym. Um, the other aspect of things, I think Marcus Philly and James Fitzgerald find that it's just a lot it's a lot less impact, a lot less strength, or a lot less uh, taxing on the central nervous system um, all the time. So can you kind of speak about how that fits in within the CrossFit world of things and when CrossFitters should be doing uh, bodybuilding and hypertrophic activities. Totally. It's a really great question. I'll preface my answer with the fact that the very reason you're asking it, uh, that, or, or rather you're asking it for a more nuanced reason. Most people have asked that question before. And the reason most CrossFitters have asked is because they look at the people in the CrossFit games mm -hmm. and they go, holy crap, these people look legitimately like bodybuilders. Like, you're never going to mistake a top 10 in the world CrossFitter for anything other than you're good at something. Good God. <laughs> like you don't just walk around in regular clothes and people are like, Oh, you may maybe play sports. You know, one of the, the, um, the, you know, the Icelandic girls takes her you know shirt off and sports bra only. And you're like, Oh my, Oh my God, what happened to your body? You are jacked. And you think, man, you know, maybe there's some relationship to having a high level of muscle mass and CrossFit performance. And that's absolutely correct. Right. To a point. Having more muscle means you're stronger and have more endurance because muscle literally is the, the wellspring of both. So if you have more muscle and less fat, you're going to be better at CrossFit. You know, clearly, there's a point to where it's too much muscle and your ability to do the endurance events and the repetitive events goes down. So there's a trade-off. But that trade-off, as we have seen with CrossFit Games winners and top-level competitors, is at a ridiculous level of muscularity. To put that another way, how many guys at your gym, or girls at your, your, sorry, at your box, go to any box in Canada or any box in the U.S.? What percent of the people there you would look at and be like, mm, you're too muscular for CrossFit optimal performance? What do you think, Eric? I'm actually asking you that question. What do you think is the answer? I would say very little. Like, I've never run into someone, like, no one, no, uh, no like, Phil Heath isn't walking into my gym trying to do some. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Olympia is not trying to do CrossFit. And if he is, he's got to lose some muscle mass. But sometimes yeah. powerlifters and weightlifters are just into CrossFit and they're too muscular. Uh, but it's very, really rare. So, the first answer is everybody can benefit from some degree of hypertrophy training. 
And, you know, so in order to get your muscularity, the, the way your muscularity helps you in CrossFit is it makes you stronger. It gives you more reps that you can do and improves your endurance. So you can get that muscularity from training for strength and reps and endurance just by training CrossFit events and doing wads and so on and so forth. That's a very good way to get your hypertrophy. But you might run into the scenario that you sort of alluded to of that kind of training is actually very taxing, right? It taxes your nervous system. It taxes your connective tissues. It taxes your psychology because, you know, going all super to failure and super hard all the time is really tough. What you can do instead is spend most of your time training like that, but spend some of your time doing some ancillary bodybuilding assistance work, so to speak, where you do some pull-ups, you do some rows, you do some curls, some lateral raises, upright rows, squats for reps or leg presses, and all of a sudden you're building muscle with a lower fatigue component so that you can take that new muscle make it stronger through your events and, and make it more endurant through your events. And all of a sudden you sort of have the best of both worlds. And that still means mostly you train as a CrossFitter, but that ancillary assistance training and bodybuilding can come in very handy. The next question we can ask is when is it more handy and when is it least handy? So by at least two things, we can conclude that there should be a sort of time component to it. One, when you're actively competing very hard in CrossFit, and it usually is a seasonal thing. It's not all the time, right? The open doesn't occur all the time. It's during a certain period of time. And, qualifying for certain local meets is you know when they're coming up it's not a surprise right during that time you want fatigue as little as low as possible and you want to train mostly crossfit events because of the fact that you want to be as good at crossfit events as possible like if you can do a bunch of cable rows nobody gives a shit <laughs> like what, you, what they care about is how many muscle ups you can do because that's what you're actually testing so you want to be in the weeks and months leading up to your crossfit competitions focusing mostly on crossfit uh and in addition to that when you're building the most muscle, it's going to be a delayed effect of it improving your crossfit performance because, first of all, you build the machinery of the muscle in hypertrophy training. Then weeks and months into having that muscle, your body learns to use it the best. So even if you could magically add muscle going into your crossfit events, it would be mostly useless to you or somewhat useless to you because you wouldn't have an ability to use it super well for neurological reasons, energy systems reasons, so on and so forth. So because we want to be good at a certain time and thus do more CrossFit then, and because these kinds of things, additions of muscle take time in order to integrate into our CrossFit approach and make us better, we see the kind of a natural separation. And then or sort of earlier in the year, so to speak, or right, right, I'll give a more specific definition. At times in which you don't do a lot of CrossFit competition or not at all, is a good time to take at least some more of a fraction of your training and do some bodybuilding stuff. All, you're always going to be doing the CrossFit stuff, but at, take a little bit away from the CrossFit put a little bit more effort into bodybuilding stuff or hypertrophy training. And then when your competition gets closer and closer and closer, you can slowly pull out bodybuilding stuff and assistance work, accessory work, add in more specific event work for CrossFit and then compete and then repeat the process. So it's kind of like when you're far away from competition, you do a bit more assistance hypertrophy work. When you're closer to competition, you do a bit less and that can go all the way from mostly assistance work in the off season to exclusively CrossFit work leading up to the event. Or it could always be like, you know, uh, 25% of your work is bodybuilding or hypertrophy when you're coming up to a competition, or when you're not, when it's 50%, something like that. So it can be a real marginal uh, change or it can be a really big change. And that specifically, you know, that depends on the athlete, their demand, so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I love that answer just because I think that like from, from a muscular perspective, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it definitely helps, you know, having bigger muscle tissue is never, to an extent, is never going to be an issue hurting you in CrossFit. But the other aspect of things is usually when you're ramping up for your competition season, if you will, like I'll use myself for an example, my biggest competition of the year is in three weeks. And post after that is when like, 
recovery. Like I'm going to be wrecked after that competition. Yeah, oh yeah. And you know, bodybuilding style stuff is, is a way for me to get back in the gym without crushing my central nervous system and going super hard on things that way. So that is definitely like that was a selfish or yeah, it was a very selfish question I wanted to ask is because like that's going to be what I want to be building my back half of the year into as I get ready for next year's competition. It's a great question though, because so many people don't know these trade-offs and they'll just, so a lot of people, I, I'm sure you notice this at various boxes you've trained at, they have like a sort of a, a general turn dial for their training. And it's, it's like all elements of the training are included and it's just turned either up or turned down. <laughs> so they'll be like, I'm training more. And you're like, more of what? They're like, everything, more bodybuilding, more CrossFit, more everything. And they tend to get close to their competition and start breaking into pieces, have a mediocre competition. Clearly, they, they're so broken by then that they have to turn the dial way down and do less of everything for weeks and months. And then they start to feel good again because they're not being stupid. And then they start to turn the entire dial up again, get close to a meet. I, I, am, I, am I repeating a, something you've seen at the uh, boxes probably your whole career here? And, 100%. And, uh, 100%, 100%. Yeah, yeah so. It's like with, like, we want to be pure, like, for people that are actively competing and want to compete, you should be periodizing your performance, your training, your nutrition throughout that year. Like it should change things up. But I think that you're right. Like most people who are, are just, you know, you're right. They're doing CrossFit 12 months of the year and, you know, keeping Metcons in all year round is something that I'm not against, but at the same time, supplementing and bringing the intensity down to facilitate you know, filling your weaknesses if, if, cause there's a lot of people like I've, I've watched many people struggle to get pull-ups and if they have pull-ups consecutive pull-ups because they don't spend, you know, three months after a, a competition season building their lat strength, right? Like they're just not strong enough to do multiple pull-ups and, and buffer lactic acid while doing multiple pull-ups. Is that something you're kind of talking about? Oh man, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So actually it's a really great example of something that we're going to be talking about much more in depth than the seminar we've got coming up in advanced hypertrophy is you can actually ask the question of which repetition ranges, how much weight on the bar, so to speak, um, causes the greatest hypertrophy. And the answer to that question is certainly more than five reps per set, uh, at least five to 10 reps, sometimes 10 to 20, sometimes even 20 to 30 reps per set. But let's say more than five, right, is for sure the answer. If more than five reps per set causes the most hypertrophy and you're an individual that can do one to three pull-ups at any time, is doing pull-ups the best way to improve your ability to do pull-ups? No. Why? Because it's not high enough volumes per set to even give you bigger lats. If you can't have bigger lats, clearly if you're doing one or two or three pull-ups, your problem probably isn't neurological or that your body doesn't know how to use its pulling musculature. You just don't have a big enough back. You get a big enough back, you can do 10, 20 pull-ups no problem, even though if you're not even good at them. So your problem there is you need to uh, do a repetition range which is conducive to hypertrophy to build the muscle. And then once you have that muscle, then you can teach it to do pull-ups really well. And then so people say, okay, if that statement is true, that means because I can only do like three pull-ups at a time, what you're telling me is for a while, I shouldn't even do pull-ups. I should do other exercises, which I can do for five to 15 reps per set. The answer is yes. So like you said, do cable rows, do pull-downs. You can even, if you love pull-ups, you could do with partner-assisted pull-ups. You can do band-assisted pull-ups. And... Um, will do lots of work in the five to 15 rep range until that rep range is something that you can do with like the, for those reps, you can lift a lot more weight, maybe even a big fraction of your body weight, maybe even all of your body weight. And then all of a sudden, let's say you started doing band assisted pull-ups with a 50 pound band and you could do sets of like five or six. 
And then you cycle through different kinds of bands, different kinds of pull-up styles. And after six months, you can use the 50-pound band to get sets of 10 or 12 in the pull-up. You go, wow, okay, this is really good. It's caused me a lot of muscle growth, and clearly I've gotten better at it. You remove that band, your max of one to three pull-ups is now a max of five to six pull-ups. And over the next several weeks, as you neurologically get better at doing actual pull-ups, which you know are a little bit different than banded pull-ups based on resistance curves, so on and so forth, you might get a PR of eight pull-ups. Oh my God, what a whirlwind. How could you ever have built that pull-up PR of eight without doing the higher reps? And the answer is if you're a sufficiently advanced athlete, there is no way to do it. Because if you just do things, people say like it's funny, they abandon the training principles that they would use for other lifts, specifically for bodyweight lifts for God knows what reason. So for example, if, let's say someone was trying to deadlift 400 pounds and they could get it like one or three times. Would anyone in the right mind be like, just keep trying to deadlift 400 pounds and eventually you'll add some reps? <laughs> like, no, it's ridiculous. You would do less weight, more reps, and slowly build up through waves and until eventually you're doing four or five sets of 10. But for some reason, people just don't want to do that with bodyweight moves. They're like, I'm just going to keep practicing dips. I'm just going to keep practicing pull-ups or I'm just going to keep practicing muscle-ups. Here's how, you, know, you want to know this Mike, Dr. Mike Israel tells super secret to being amazing at muscle-ups. One, be able to do a shitload of pull-ups with your own body weight, which could mean that you do you know, back work with less at some point. Point number two, be able to do dips first assisted and then unassisted with a, a ton of reps with your own body weight and eventually get up into doing weighted dips with like you know, potentially hundreds of pounds uh, of dips. Notice we haven't done a single muscle-up this entire time. Then start to learn the technique of muscle-ups. And once you learn the technique, because you're so big and strong already, soon you're going to be doing like hundreds of muscle-ups, no problem, because you have the underlying physical characteristics, which is strong back, strong chest, strong triceps, big, strong muscles. And then it's just a matter of learning the technique, which is super easy. You know, muscle-ups are not an event in Olympic gymnastics. They're not that, they don't take that much coordination, right? Let's be honest. They take some for sure, but it's not like practicing the movement. It's going to unlock some kind of secret ability. Like when you have little baby shrimpy lats and little baby biceps and tiny triceps, there's no technique that's going to make you good at muscle-ups. You just have to put in the work, which might mean doing things that are not muscle-ups for a while. That's a quintessential part of periodization. That's how people get better for sport. Um, you know, when you get better for basketball, you don't just play basketball and get better. Somebody has to teach you how to dribble and pass the ball. That doesn't look like anything you do in basketball. It's just a component of it. And someone's like, oh, this is boring. That's just how you get good at sports. So the same thing applies to CrossFit and everything else. Yeah, 100%. And I, I totally agree with you. Like the, the shitty thing that you just said was that like, oh my God, Mike, it's going to take me six months to get maybe two more or three more pull-ups. Come on. Like it takes so long, right? And that's the other thing that you talked about. Like it, it was similar to what you talked about with nutrition. Like the real answer is the one that sounds really fucking boring. Like you're, you're going to have to do a lot of bent over rows, a lot of rows, building up lat strength and not doing muscle ups to get better at muscle ups. And for some people like too, it's a, it's a body weight issue. But, you know, like you sure. see a lot of people who get their first muscle up and it's very ugly and they get it because they have a ton of lat strength, more lat strength than anything else. And they borderline strict it, right? Like yeah. then you can teach them the hips. I mean, th the hip popping is the easy part. Once you figure that out, the last question yeah. I kind of had was kind of giving you just a chance to talk yeah. about that, that Calgary seminar. And like most people who listen to this are CrossFitters are interested in CrossFit, but those who are not, what can we expect to get out of that, that two-day seminar if you're a CrossFitter, but just if you're a general person looking to learn some more about building the biggest muscles you can? Yeah. Well, it's going to be an advanced seminar. So it's going to be a seminar which talks about relatively advanced techniques and building muscle. And you're going to come away with some sense of shock and awe if you're not super invested in this and learn a ton. Or if you are super invested and you only know a lot, you're going to learn a lot of nuances and a lot of updates to the literature and the training theory that are going to be super, super effective eking that much more muscle growth out of your program. If you're a CrossFitter 
and you come to our seminar, you can uh, expect to learn how to integrate muscular training into your program, how to get the most out of it, how to make sure that when your goal, your sub goal of getting better at CrossFit is muscle growth, that you're doing that part right. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like, you know, if you have, if we were training chefs, this is a course to, and, and how to make the best pastries. You might still be screwing up your spaghetti making or your, you know, quiche making, but you're going to learn pastries real well. So when it comes time to the pastry part of the dinner, you're going to be really good at that. Just the same way. We're not going to teach you how to do muscle ups for CrossFit. We're not going to teach you how to arrange your CrossFit training plan. That's for other people to do. But the part of it that is uh, uh, considering muscle growth, you're going to learn to do very, very well. In addition to that, we're going to be talking about recovery, which is super, super important as I clearly don't have to tell you. Um, uh, we're going to take a scientific approach on recovery. A big thing about recovery is very, very much in the context of what we're talking about. So many ripoffs, pseudoscientific bullshit fads in recovery. Oh my God. CrossFit is no exception to that. CrossFit no. itself is really good about it. Worse. Ancillary, yeah, the ancillary industries and people around CrossFit space. You know, CrossFit beats you up. Even if you do it right, it's a fucking tough sport. It's one of the toughest sports on the planet. So of course yep. it attracts people who are offering you actual solutions and people who are offering you total bullshit and that say, hey, this is going to help you recover. So we're going to talk about a recovery toolbox. Our Dr. James Hoffman is going to talk about that, in which basically lets you figure out what about recovery practices works, what works the best, what works the worst, what doesn't work. And you come out of that seminar, you're not going to be ripped off anymore nearly as much. You're going to be able to invest in the, again, boring, systematic ways to enhance your recovery, which is actually going to make you better at sport and get you injured less and so on and so forth. And then uh, there's going to be some talking about diets stuff and diet psychology. I'll tell you what, it's interesting. You mentioned a lot of people get their first muscle ups when they lose weight because it's a weight issue. If you're dragging around 40 or 50 pounds of excess fat, gee, you know, muscle ups are really hard. You start to lose some of that weight, it starts to become the body weight moves and cardio moves become much, much easier. We're going to have uh, chats about dieting. And one of the things about dieting is sometimes people really sort of know more or less what to do, but they run into psychological problems with dieting. For example, if you're out for a weekend, and, uh, you know, people are eating delicious foods around you. It's summertime, right? I assume in Canada that means it's about, what, five degrees or something? <laughs> so, the, you know, the elk, the elk are no longer frozen to the road. They're actually walking around. And um, so it's it probably 14 degrees today. That is rough. That is not, um, you know what? It is, it is, what is it right now? It's probably 33 degrees in Philadelphia. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in our trip because I could use not 33 degrees. <laughs> it's funny, I just got back from a business trip from uh, to uh, Australia and it's their winter. It's their winter is comically not a winter by Canadian standards. It's, it's probably summer, but um, it was like you know ten degrees over there, twelve degrees, and it was nice. It was brisk. And then I, I step off the plane. It's like nine at night, and it's like twenty eight here. And I'm like, good god. And like, humid too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Super humid. And I forgot. I was like, oh, that's right. The Eastern United States. I forgot about this. The mosquito is the 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 state bird here. So um, so in any case, uh, you know, nowadays uh, summertime. There's a lot of barbecues going on. People are having a lot of fun. People are drinking beer. People are eating tasty foods. People in your gym. People at parties that your box puts on. How do you navigate that space? When is the best time for dieting? How do you integrate potentially eating some off-plan foods? How do you deal with guilt and rationalization and the fear of not making progress? How do you deal with consistency and meticulousness and determination to make sure you don't veer off track when you don't want? That is Dr. Melissa Davis's area of expertise, and she's actually a neuroscientist by trade. She's going to be talking about that kind of stuff. So if you want to lose fat, you want to build muscle, you want to enhance your hypertrophy training, or you just want to hear a lot of terrible jokes and uh, our attempts to connect with you on a personal level, then come to the seminar because it's going to be, quote, unquote, lots of fun. 
Yeah, and I think that, like, you know, you timed it perfectly. It'll be also right after Calgary Stampede. So if you want to listen to Melissa talk, you can figure out how next time to get through Stampede and, and knock oh. 100 pounds. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Mike. I can't wait to, to attend the seminar and see you guys in person. I think it's going to be a really valuable weekend. Why don't you let everyone know where we can find you, and then we'll definitely put the, uh, the link to the seminar in the show notes and plug it that way, and hopefully we can get as many people as possible to the seminar. Sounds great. Yep, the seminar on the show notes. And then how to find me um, at RP Strength on Instagram is Renaissance Periodization. You can follow, and we have lots of cool stuff on there. If you want to try out our diet app, it's on the iTunes Store and on the Google Play Store. Just type in RP Diet, uh, letter R, letter P, Diet. And that's on there. And uh, it's a two-week free trial, so got nothing to lose. We hack your cell phone to turn it into a super secret spy gadget. But, you know, I'm not – oh, did I say that out loud? Um, but it's free. So – and then uh, and then if you want to access my, my own personal ramblings and see pictures of me half-naked, inappropriate poses in gyms across the world, then uh, our R-P-D-R-M-I-K-E, R-P Dr. Mike, on Instagram, and then Mike Israel on Facebook, renaissanceperiodization.com on the internet. Just go to RP Strength and click through the site because nobody knows how to spell renaissance periodization, including myself. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, if you if you check out Mike's uh, Instagram, it's going to be fun as well as, I mean, RP Strength is, is a lot of really good resources and a lot of just funny, good quotes looking at the way nutrition and training in, intersect. Um, but mostly just pictures of Mike's quads on, uh, on, on his Instagram. Yes. Thanks so much for coming on, Mike. We'll see you uh, in, I guess, a little less than two weeks in the... Cold. Very cool. Thanks so much for having me on.